Amen. Tonight we want to turn our attention to a portion that we've read this evening, 1 Peter chapter 3, and our text tonight will be the verse number 18, but we'll come to our text in just a moment. But if we think very briefly here about verse 17, just that verse that precedes our text this evening, we find here that Peter, he is speaking about the subject of suffering. We learn there in verse number 17, as Peter would give advice to the people of God, he says, For it is better if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And Peter here is making uh, the point as he writes to the church, as he writes to the people of God, as he seeks to guide and to direct and to give counsel to God's people, that there will be time, times in our lives as Christians, there will be times as we make our way uh, through our pilgrimage in this scene of time, that we will be living uh, what we could say uh, as morally. We're living as God instructs us to live. We're living uh, a life which uh, we're trying to be as righteous and holy by the grace of God as we can. We seek to be living by the book. It is our rule of faith and practice, and we seem to be trying to do all that we can for Christ. And yet, even in those times, uh, we will face suffering from the world. Perhaps that's been your experience tonight. You've been walking close to God. You've been going on well with the Lord. You've been walking close to his side. You've been living a life which is holy, a life which is upright. You're fleeing from sin. You're seeking day by day to live holy unto the Lord. And yet still in those times, there is suffering and trial and affliction that comes. There'll be those who will criticize. There'll be those that will oppose us. There will be those that will not take kindly to the stance that we take. They will seek to discredit us. They will seek to discourage us. And Peter is encouraging Christians here that if they are doing well, if they're living as they ought, and if as a result we will suffer, we will face affliction, we'll face trial in the world, well, at the end of the day, it's always going to be fruitful for the child of God. It's always going to be beneficial. Whatever suffering we face, whatever affliction we have, whatever we face for the cause of Christ, even though in that very moment of time it may not seem to be good, it may not seem to be working out for the glory of God, yet it will always be beneficial to the people of God, especially if we're living well for Christ. In fact, Peter makes the point here that it will be more beneficial for us to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing wrong. And it reminds us here generally as Peter speaks to the people of God about this great subject of suffering. And whether you're saved tonight or not, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're good living or whether you live uh, publicly in the sins of the world, whether you're popular or whether you're unknown, whatever uh, background you might be from, whatever circumstance you might be in, suffering is a reality in life. If you haven't experienced suffering, it'll not be too long till you do. That's not being pessimistic. That's not having the glass half full or nearly empty. It's a reality. It's the fact of life. It is something that cannot be denied. We will face suffering in this scene of time. And even more so as the people of God, as we take a stand for Jesus Christ, suffering will come. Heartache will be faced. Difficulty will come our way. Even when we look at those who perhaps... We would say are in the limelight, so-called celebrities, maybe sports stars, those that seem to have it all, those that seem to be living a life of peace and joy, and they are those that many people today strive to be like and to emulate and use as a model in their lives, and all appears to be so trouble-free. 
and all appears to be so well in their life, but even they will face suffering. Even they will have difficulty and strife and suffering in their life. It's a fact of life that we will struggle, that we will suffer. The suffering comes, of course, in many different ways. There's the suffering maybe of health, or mental health or physical health. There are those struggles that might be short-term, struggles that might be long-term. There are sufferings that are to do with loss and grief when we lose those that are dear to our hearts, those that we love, those that we care for, those that we've spent many years with. And when they depart from this scene of time, there is suffering, there's loss, there is grief, there is heartache that enters in and we've pain and sorrow in our hearts. Suffering could be to do with material possessions. We could be struggling to put food on the table. We could be struggling to pay the next bill. We could be wondering how we're going to go on financially in the world. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe we're suffering in the home. Maybe we're suffering in a marriage or with uh, children or family members or friends and we're being caused heartache and suffering by the way they live their lives. Of course, the list is nearly endless really, to what we could bring under this category of suffering. Suffering that each one will face at one stage or another. It's a fact of life. It's inevitable. We don't like to imagine it. We don't wish it upon ourselves. We shouldn't wish it upon anyone else. And yet suffering is a reality. And Peter deals here in verse 17 as suffering, as being a fact of life. It's a reality. Suffering will come. You will suffer for Christ. You will suffer in the world. You will suffer with affliction and difficulty. We're reminded in verse 17 that suffering exists. However, I want us to turn our attention to verse 18. Because Peter, having spoken of our suffering, having dealt with the subject of the suffering that we can face, that we endure in this scene of time, Peter turns his attention and that of his readers to the suffering of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says there in verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And on one hand, in verse 17, we have our suffering, the suffering of the human race, suffering of the child of God. And yet on the other hand, in verse 17 here, we have the suffering of Jesus Christ. The two are not the same. The two cannot be mentioned together. The two must be dealt with in separate verses. The two are not to be compared because they are all together different. The suffering, of course, that we face is real. The suffering that Peter deals with here in verse 17, it is a reality in our life. It causes great distress. It brings heartache and sorrow that is real. But at the same time, it is nothing in comparison to the suffering of Christ. The heartache the sorrow that he endured on our behalf. You take all the times that you've suffered and we are in no way diminishing your suffering, and your sorrow and your troubles and your heartache, yet they are nowhere close to the suffering that Jesus Christ endured for us. Tonight we want to think not of our suffering, the suffering of Jesus Christ. Taking verse 18 as our text, there are four things we want to Think about here as we think of the suffering of Christ. Notice with me, firstly, the seriousness of Christ's suffering. The seriousness. Peter says in verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, and then towards the end being put to death in the flesh. 
There are several comments to make here about the seriousness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Firstly, we must state the fact here. We must make the comment. We must begin with the reality that these sufferings of Christ were real. It's not the case that as we read through Scripture, and Scripture has much to say on the sufferings of Christ. It's not the case that as we read through the pages of Scripture, as we deal with what happened to Christ, whether it was his beatings that he received or his death on the cross or whatever else happened in between, that we're just reading some figurative language, that we're just reading something that is a picture or a type or a representation. The record of the sufferings of Christ, they are not written to us in the form or the fashion of a parable, something to give an illustration, something to explain a greater spiritual truth. But as we deal with the sufferings of Christ in Scripture, we deal with them as a reality. When we read of Christ receiving beatings, being wounded in the body, being spat upon, being mocked, being ridiculed. When we read of that crown of thorns being pushed deep down into his head, when we read of those nails that were driven into his hands and his feet, when we read about how that cross was thumped down into the ground and we think about how it ripped the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, how he shed his precious blood, how he died in agony upon that tree, those things are a reality. They are what Christ actually, in reality, suffered for sinners just like you and I. Not just the physical suffering. We think of the suffering that Christ endured in his soul. Think about Christ in the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. What a real agony Christ was in. When we read of the sweat being his great drops of blood, I believe that he was literally sweating drops of blood. Such was the pressure of the agony in his soul. He suffered in his soul at the weight of the guilt of our sin being placed upon him. And it was a real suffering. It was a reality in the life of Jesus Christ. And dear friend, do not believe anyone that will try to tell you tonight that Christ's sufferings were not a reality. Don't believe anyone that tells you that Scripture begins to exaggerate the sufferings of Christ. Quite the opposite. Scripture really only gives us a glimpse. Just a small glimpse of the suffering of Christ. For we could never comprehend in our human minds just what Christ endured. We could think of the worst suffering that we could think of in this scene of time. It wouldn't come close to what Christ endured. And Peter sets it forth here as a fact that Christ suffered. He doesn't try to prove it. He doesn't try to reason it out. He doesn't try to convince others that Christ really suffered, that this is what happened. But he states it as a fact. Verse 18, for Christ has suffered being put to death in the flesh. Christ's suffering was real. Christ endured such a suffering. And of course, the reality of a suffering makes them very serious indeed. It's one thing for us to think about suffering and imagine suffering and to fear even suffering. But to endure it, physically in our body, to have it as a reality in our life, how much more serious it becomes. Christ really suffered. And so we see here that Christ's suffering was real, but we also see that it was intense. We learn from Peter that Christ also hath once suffered for sins, and it's that phrase there, once suffered. Peter's not saying here that there was only one occasion in the life of Jesus Christ, that he suffered, that there was only one time, that there was only one event in which Christ felt suffering in his life and the rest of his life was, was peace and rest. That's not the case at all because we only need to look at God's word 
which reveals to us that that's not true. Throughout his life here on earth, he suffered. We know that he suffered on the cross. We know all that he endured in the lead up to his death and crucifixion. We know very well those events that are recorded for us. But he suffered much before that as well. And throughout his life, he was mocked. He was rejected. He he experienced grief. He experienced sorrow. He wept over Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem. He was tried in a corrupt trial. He was beaten and mocked. His body was wounded and bruised. Christ suffered many times throughout his life. Christ's life was a life of suffering. Christ came to this world to suffer. Christ entered into that estate of humiliation, the Son of the living God, who was living in the splendor of glory, in the presence of God, the Heavenly Father. He came to suffer. And it was a life of suffering. And Peter here, he's not just speaking of one occasion of suffering, but what Peter is telling us and reminding us here, that Christ went through all of this suffering on all of these occasions throughout his entire life, but he did it once to pay for sin. Christ's task in coming to this world, God manifests in the flesh, was to seek and to save that which was lost. He was coming to give his life a sacrifice for sin. He was coming to suffer to redeem his people from their sin. He had to take upon himself the wrath of God. He had to bear upon himself and upon his own soul that hell that we would have to endure. He had to be cut off from God, the heavenly Father. He had to suffer what we uh, would have to suffer because of our sins. He took what was due to us, this one who knew no sin. He became sin for us. He suffered. He bore the wrath of God. God poured out his full wrath upon him. He cut Christ off from him in order to pay for the sin of his people. And Peter reminds us here that in all these things, as we read of the suffering of Christ, as we read of his sacrifice on the cross, as we read of all that he did here in this scene of time to redeem his people from their sin, that he had to do it but once. You know what that tells us about his suffering? That it was intense. It had to be. Scripture speaks, of course, very clearly and very graphically about the torment and the torture and the agony And the pain and the suffering of hell. Think about that rich man who longed for just a drop of cool water on his tongue. Such was his agony and his pain. And every sinner who passes from this world and into God's eternity, as they're cast into hell forever, they will endure unbearable pain for all eternity. As God's wrath is poured out upon them, In those flames of a fiery hell, they will suffer forever and forever. A suffering that we could never begin to comprehend tonight. I remember preaching one time the subject of hell in Demarion. I have to say it was one of the most difficult things I've ever preached on. Such is the torment of hell. That's just one sinner. Think of how hell is full of sinners, countless souls that have been lost. Many more souls, no doubt, that would leave this scene of time. They'll be cast from the presence of God. They will endure God's wrath for all eternity. Then think, on the other hand, of those for whom Christ died. There are many souls today in the glory. We thank God for those that have been saved. They're redeemed because Christ has died for them. Because Christ has bore the punishment for their sin. Not only those in heaven today, but many more yet to come. 
And Christ on the cross, he took the punishment of their hell upon himself. Christ endured the wrath of God for every soul that is in heaven and every soul that will go to heaven in eternity to come, every individual, every sin of every individual. Christ has bore it all. Christ only had to do it once. And so we can only really begin to imagine how intense and how serious and how severe and how painfully agonizing the sufferings of Christ must have been. And it was even more severe due to the fact that he was the sinless son of God. He knew no sin. Whilst we never diminish any suffering that you might have or endure or will endure in the days ahead, it is most serious to you, but it is nothing compared to the intense sufferings that Christ endured for sinners. Nothing in comparison. It wasn't the case that Christ spread the sufferings, paid the price for all sinners over, uh, that come to him over multiple visits to earth, over multiple crucifixions. No, he bore it in one. Once he came, once he offered himself, once he paid the price, oh, the intensity, oh, the pain, oh, the agony of the sufferings of Jesus Christ, how serious his sufferings were. And he did it to redeem us from our sin. We also see the seriousness of the sufferings of Christ here in that it resulted in death. That was, to some extent, the end of these sufferings. Christ died. We said at the beginning of the message that we all suffer in life. We all endure afflictions and troubles and heartaches in many different ways and many different guises. But the fact is that the majority of our sufferings will not end in death. But Christ did. Because Christ came to suffer and the end of that suffering was death. Death as the great sacrifice for sin. And the end of the sufferings of Christ was his death. And a most cruel and horrific death at that. His death on the cross, when he cried out, it is finished. The work was done. Christ says in John 15, the verse 13, Greater love with no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Christ came to die. He laid down his life for his people. And dear friends, Christ's suffering were serious. It was real. It was intense. Resulted in the death of the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ himself. And what we read in Scripture is not exaggerated. What we read is not just a picture or a type. What we read is not just an illustration of what Christ did to save us from our sin. But Christ endured this suffering in reality and he did it to redeem his people from their sin. He did it to save us from eternal hell. The seriousness. Of Christ's suffering. Notice secondly here the substitution in Christ's suffering. The remarkable thing about this suffering of Christ is the fact that he didn't do it for himself. He didn't do it to gain anything for his own soul, but he did it as a substitute. Look at what Peter says in verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins the just for the unjust. The just for the unjust. The just, of course, is speaking of Christ. Christ is just. It means that he's innocent, that he's holy, that he's righteous, that he is without sin. Speaking about his perfection and his holiness. It's speaking about how he is God manifest in the flesh. 
He came as the God-man, that human nature in union with his divine nature. He is sinless, he is innocent, he is righteous, and yet we learn here in verse 18 that he died as if he was guilty. The Holy One died as if he was unholy. The Righteous One died as if he was wicked. He suffered the just for the unjust. Being unjust means you're guilty, you're unholy, you're wicked, you're full of sin and wretchedness. And so here we learn, and Peter reminds us that Christ, this sinless one, this just one, this righteous son of the living God, he died for wretched, hell-deserving sinners. It's revealed to us also elsewhere in Scripture. We can think of 2 Corinthians 5 and the verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. There's his righteousness, his justice, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He died the just for the unjust. And here is the great work of substitution, this taking the place of, that is what Christ has done when we think about the suffering that he endured. He did it for us. He did it in the place and the stead of sinners. He suffered so that we don't have to suffer. That's really the message of the gospel. It's the good news for sinners tonight. That ought to bring you hope because scripture tells us that we're all unrighteous. We're born in sin. We're shaped in iniquity. There is none righteous. No, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. As you sit in God's house tonight outside of Christ, you have fallen short of God's glory and you're a sinner heading to that eternal damnation in hell. We've broken God's law. We've offended a holy God. And yet the gospel message reveals that Christ has stood in the place of sinners. Christ has become a great substitute. The suffering sinners should have to endure as a result of our sin. The hell that we should have to receive as a result of our wretchedness towards God. It has been endured by Christ on behalf of his people. The just has died for the unjust. Christ has came in as the great substitute. He has taken the place of the sinner. As God's wrath has been poured out upon him on the cross, he did it there not for himself, not for his own sin, for he knew no sin, but for the sins of his people that were laid upon his charge. But this substitution isn't for everyone. The substitutionary work of Christ isn't automatically applied at birth. You see, Scripture makes it clear that we need to repent and believe the gospel. Scripture makes it clear that it is the whosoever will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Scripture makes it clear that we must turn away from our sin. We must flee from the wrath that is to come. We must cast ourselves upon Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. And therefore tonight, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you're not saved. You're still bearing the weight of the guilt of your own sin. And in that state, as you leave this scene of time, it will be you that will be responsible for the punishment. You're still heading to that lost sinner's hell. But oh, we encourage you tonight to come to the substitute. Come to the one who has died in the place of sinners. Come to Jesus Christ. Trust in him, the one who has suffered so that you don't have to suffer. The one who has bore the wrath of God so that you can escape eternal damnation. Come to the one who has become the great substitute. Who has paid the price. Who has bore the sin of his people. And ended their suffering as a result. Oh come to the great substitute this evening. Christ has died for sinners. 
This is the message of the gospel. Dear friend, you need nothing of the world. You need nothing of yourself for these things will never be able to save you. It is only Christ that has suffered for the sinner. It's only Christ that has stood in the place and the stead of the sinner. And tonight it is to Christ alone you must come. And we trust and pray that you would, the seriousness of his suffering, the substitution in his suffering. Notice thirdly here, the salvation as a result of his suffering. Look at what Peter again tells us in verse number 18. For Christ uh, also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. What does it mean when we talk about a sinner? That's a word that maybe we use quite a lot, but what does it actually mean to be a sinner? What does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be unsaved? Well, it means that we're cut off from God. It means that we've broken God's commandments. We're the enemies of God. God's being light cannot have fellowship with darkness. And so we have no fellowship with God. That's why when Adam committed sin in the Garden of Eden, he was immediately driven from the garden because he was separated from God. He was cut off from God because of his sin. And the same is true of our heart and soul today. And to be a sinner is to be one who has grieved the Lord by the breaking of his law. And therefore we are cut off from him. We can never enter into heaven. We can never be found in the presence of God if we have sin in our souls. Because light has no fellowship with darkness. Sin can have no fellowship with holiness. God will have no fellowship with sinners. That's why if you're not saved tonight, there's a great gulf fixed between you and God. You're separated. There's nothing you can do to bridge the gap. There's nothing you can do to convince God to let you into his presence. There's nothing you can do to bribe God or to offer anything to God in order to cause him to change his mind and to convince him to let you into glory. There is nothing you can do to be saved from sin yourself. But here's where the suffering and the substitution of Christ comes in because here we learn in verse 18 of what happens to those who repent of their sin, of those who trust in Christ to redeem them from their sin. We learn that Christ brings them to God for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God. You see, Christ closes the gap. Christ is the way, the truth, the life. Christ is the doorway to God himself. Christ reunites us to our creator. How? Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. When a sinner trusts in Jesus Christ, not only as we've thought about, does Christ take the sin of that sinner upon himself in terms of paying for its debt? Not only does Christ take the wrath of God, not only does he become guilty for our sin, but in this great transaction that takes place, Christ then places his righteousness in our account. His holiness, his standing before God is all passed to our account as he clothes us in his robes of his righteousness. What does that mean? It means we're accepted by God. Not because of what you have done, not because of any effort that you have made, not because you have somehow tried to bridge the gap yourself, but because of all that Christ has done, because of who Christ is. Christ brings us to God. He bridges the gap. And when God looks upon the soul that has been saved by sin, when he looks upon that sinner that is saved by grace, he no longer sees their sin. He no longer sees their wretchedness. He no longer smells the stench of the wickedness of their souls, but he sees the glorious righteousness of his dear son. 
Dear child of God, that is something I've never really been able to take in, that Christ would clothe me in his righteousness. Oh, what a wonder. To be accepted by God, not because of anything we have done, but because Christ has placed his righteousness in our account. What a message. It's true in this life, we can begin to pray to God. We can begin to walk with God, but it's also true of eternity because Christ will welcome us into his presence. We'll be welcomed into the presence of God for all eternity. Oh, there's a wonderful eternal salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. See, that was the end of the sufferings of Christ. It was to redeem a people unto himself. It was to bridge this gap. It was to open the door to God. And I wonder then, dear friend, tonight, would you repent of your sin? Would you place your trust in Jesus Christ? Would you reach out and accept this offer of salvation? Would you come and place your faith in the great substitute? The seriousness of his suffering, the substitution in his suffering, the salvation in his suffering. Then in the last place, we notice here the security as a result of Christ's suffering. Peter says a wonderful thing at the end of verse 18 regarding Christ. He's spoken about his suffering. He's spoken about his death. spoken about all that that has entailed. But he ends this verse by saying here, but quickened by the Spirit. Christ suffered. He died and it was a real death. He was really in the grave for three days, but how tragic would the message of the gospel be if it ended there? There would be no hope. There would be no security. There would be no certainty in the message of the gospel. How could we trust in a Savior who's dead? How could we trust in a Savior who has failed himself to conquer death? How can we place a faith in a Savior who remains in the grave? But oh, how the gospel reveals to us here that this is not the end because Christ was quickened by the Spirit. He rose again. He came victoriously triumphant from the grave. He rose on the third day. And as Peter speaks here about the suffering of Christ as he reminds us of the death that Christ has suffered on our behalf, he reminds us here that that was not the end, but he was raised again by the Spirit. He is alive today. He has ascended into heaven where he will remain until he will come again to take us home to be with him. Christ was raised from the dead. Christ was welcomed back again into heaven by God, the heavenly Father. But what's the significance of that? Why does that bring us security? Why does that give us a hope and a confidence in the gospel? Well, it means that God has accepted the sacrifice that Christ has made. As God has welcomed Christ again into his presence in heaven, it is a great signifier that the work is done. It's complete. It's been accepted by God, the heavenly Father. What Christ has come to do, he has accomplished. What God has sent forth Christ to do, Christ has faithfully done. He has fulfilled the word of God to the very last letter. And he has now been accepted into the presence of God. God has Uh, has confirmed that the work of Christ is done, it is complete, his work on earth is finished, he has come to do what he has came to do, and therefore salvation is a completed work, all has been paid. There is nothing left for us to do. 
There is nothing we can add. There is nothing we can alter. There is nothing that we can do to make salvation better. There is no meeting God halfway or doing this and that to make ourselves accepted. But Christ has done it all and it's been accepted by God the Heavenly Father. And in that there's a great security. Christ has suffered for sinners to save them from their sin. And the work is complete. And Christ has rose from the dead and he's alive. The right hand of God the Father tonight and he's making intercession. You know, Scripture tells us that Christ is coming again. There'll be a day, an hour, where Christ will return. It will usher in the end of this world and the great day of judgment, a day when you will stand before God as your judge. You'll not stand before your friends. You'll not stand before your colleagues or your family. You'll not stand before yourself, but you'll stand before the God who's created you. The God who's offered you this invitation of salvation tonight. What will you have done with Christ? What will you be able to say on that day of judgment, will you have nothing but your sin? Well, if that's the case, you'll be cast, separated from God for all eternity, cut off from him. You will endure and suffer the torment of hell forever and forever. But here we learn that Christ suffered so that you don't have to. The work is complete and the invitation has been given. I wonder then, tonight, dear friend, would you come? Just come as you are. Come with all your sin. Come with the burden and the weight of the guilt of sin upon your soul. And come and trust in Christ, for he has done it all. He has suffered the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Would you come to Jesus Christ tonight? Come while you're still in the day of grace. Come while God is still calling. Come while the door of God's grace and mercy is still open. And come tonight simply trusting in Jesus Christ and resting in him alone for the salvation of your precious never dying soul. I trust you would come this evening. And don't delay another moment. But come and be sure tonight of an eternal home in heaven. We trust the Lord will bless his word to your hearts this evening. Hymn number 95 for our closing hymn. The hymn number 95, Man of Sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. 95 will stand together.